you have your Bibles, you can open up at Psalm 11. We're going to be spending all our time in Psalm 11 and kind of jumping around from there. But we are going to be talking about how to navigate through life's difficulties. How many of you have faced a few difficulties in your life? Okay, and the rest of you, you're not going to raise your hand no matter what I say. But I know we all face tough times, don't we? And we all have expectations of how things were going to work out. And, you know, they don't necessarily work out that way. Um, I, I was determined that I was going to marry a very tall man. It just didn't work out that way. It just didn't work out that way. <laughs> I, don't, I don't count it as a difficulty because I think I got the best in the world. But nonetheless, you know, sometimes... Life has a way of taking turns that are different from what we imagined. And how we navigate through that will determine whether we are successful or not. Because I promise you this, that there will be challenges that you don't expect. There will be difficulties that come that you don't expect. I'm sorry, it's like a really bad message. <laughs> so I come to church and be really happy. You're going to face difficulties. But there will, there will be difficulties that come. But the, the good news is this, is that Jesus has gone before you. He made a way. This is a truth. You can write it down. You can tattoo it over your chest. You can write it on your bathroom mirror. You can have a business card made of it. The cross accomplished everything. The cross accomplished everything. There are no impossible situations. Listen to me, church. Listen to me. I know this is a paradigm shift that takes us a lot of like wrestling with, because it seems like we faced impossible situations. I'm here to tell you there is no such thing as an impossible situation. I do a lot of counseling, and you know what? The main thing that, that Andrew and I both find we have to do in counseling scenarios is to get the person to think differently about their situation, to start seeing there is a solution to this, and if I just stick with God, I will find it. To break out of that hopelessness that caused us to just give up, not try, just turn the other way, forsake the dreams, run into hiding, and say, God, no. It's true. The cross accomplished everything, and there is always a solution because the cross accomplished everything. So there was a man in the Bible by the name of King David. And he was a spectacular success. He ruled Israel at a time when Israel was at its greatest and its mightiest. The nations around trembled at the thought of the nation of Israel. They didn't dare to oppose his rule because no matter where he went, he won victories and he did spectacular things. We all know him as the man who slayed Goliath with a single stone. But for me, King David is the quintessential comeback king. <laughs> because when you read his life in the Bible, it is mind-blowing to see what he faced. And you know, some of the things were the opposition he received from people, but some of them was his own stupidity. And I so love that. I so love that because you know what? I don't know about you, but I have made some mistakes in my life. And we are so tempting to think that that mistake just somehow. <laughs> oh, yeah, you, you. It's tempting to think that those mistakes disqualify us. 
But his life is like this shining banner of everyone can make it. So some of the things David faced is, first of all, he was overlooked by his father. When, when, they were going to, when Samuel was looking for a new king over Israel, he came to David's father and wanted to find one of the sons to anoint as king. And his dad didn't even bother to call him in from the sheep because he knew his son. David would never be the one. Maybe you've been overlooked by important people in your life. You're in good company. He was persecuted by his boss. Saul threw spears at him when he played the harp. And then he had to go to Saul's son, Jonathan, and say, I think your father wants to kill me. And Jonathan says, no, no, no. What makes you think so? Oh, you know, that, that spear that flew past my head and hit the wall two inches from me. Maybe that was a clue. But nonetheless, he spent a large proportion of his life fleeing from Saul. He was ridiculed by his brother when he was going to slay Goliath. His, his brother literally stood there and said, who, who are you to do this? He was despised by his wife. Men, don't raise your hand. Don't raise your hand. Don't even get any expression on your face right now. But maybe, maybe you've had these experiences where your, your wife or your spouse or a significant person that you were looking for recognition and validation from despised you. He was attacked by his own son. Seriously? He was betrayed by a friend. We don't have a record of it, but he writes in Psalm 41 about how this close friend betrayed him. He committed adultery. Also, no expressions right now. <laughs> but I mean, I, sometimes we, that's probably the, the, the most devastating thing you can do in a family. And he did that, and yet God still came through for him. Now, that doesn't mean you can go and do that, but what it means is no matter where you've been, God can rescue and redeem. He murdered a loyal friend. It wasn't the friend who betrayed him even. It was another friend that stood by him. He lost a child. Maybe you've had devastating loss in your life. Maybe it wasn't a child. Maybe it was something else. And he made, a mis he made mistakes as a father. His, his one son raped his one daughter. I mean, I, I don't know how bad your family is, but gosh, that, that's pretty bad. So David experienced all these, these very difficult things. But the Bible says one thing very profound about him in the book of Acts. Later they were writing about him, and it speaks of David as a man after God's own heart. What does that mean? It means that in his mind, he had set forth a goal. And that was to know God, to be with God, to be God's man. And no matter what obstacle or difficulty or failure came his way, he picked himself up afterwards and said, God, come and restore me because I'm getting back on track to that same goal. I'm, I'm going after that thing. And, you know, because of that attitude in his heart, because of that attitude in his heart, God said, you know what? There is nothing in your past that can disqualify you. Because this very thing in your heart is what makes you qualified. It's your passion for me. It's your desire to know you, to know me. It's your desire to be with me. 
he wrote a psalm, Psalm 11. He wrote many psalms, but this is one of the psalms he wrote. And the reason I chose this is because I feel like it gives us clues. It gives us clues as to how he navigated through this, this kind of turbulent life. The choices he made, how he picked himself up, what he did differently that made him successful despite the challenges. It starts to say this, in the Lord I take refuge. How then can you say to me, obviously while he's taking refuge, people are like chirping and telling him all kinds of things. How can you say to me, flee like a bird to your mountain? For look, the wicked bend their bows, they set their arrows against their strings to shoot from the shadows at the upright in heart. When the foundations are being destroyed, what can the righteous do? The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord is in his heavenly throne. He observes the sons of men. His eyes examine them. The Lord examines the righteous, but the wicked and those who love violence, his soul hates. On the wicked, he will rain fiery coals and burning sulfur. A scorching wind will be their lot. I thought I would just focus on that scripture, that verse for the whole day. How do you feel about that? Actually, I'm just going to skip that one because we all have, we all have a sense of that there is judgment on the other side of, of our sin. And so I don't think I need to drum that into your heart. But he goes on and he says this, For the Lord is righteous. He loves justice. Upright men will see his face. Father, I just pray that as we unpack this word, that you would, you would cause us to gain what we need to know. So that we can be called like David, men and women after your heart. Men and women who make it to the end of their lives successful. Men and women who see victory after victory. Overcomers who rise up in the midst of difficulties and stand there with the glory of God arrayed on them and lead other people into victory. Thank you, Father. So the first thing I want to note that he says there is that while people were telling him to flee like a bird to your mountain, he was, he was resisting that. How many of you, when some difficult things happen, your first response is to withdraw? Maybe you started out at your job and you thought, you know, if I work really hard, I'm going to get promoted every year. And lo and behold, three years have gone by and you haven't been promoted. And your temptation... Your temptation is to say, ah, throw in the towel. I'm not going to try anymore. I'm not going to believe for this thing anymore. Maybe you've been believing for a certain healing for a number of years. And, you know, now you're thinking, oh, just give up. Maybe you've had some relational tension with friends or family. And the temptation is to just withdraw, not try anymore, not contact them, not be contactable. How many of you have ever experienced that? That desire to withdraw. That desire to give up. You know what I so love about David? Is that he really didn't do this. He kept the destination in mind. What he did is he, did you know, sorry, let me backtrack. Did you know that, that the, from the time that he was anointed king, where the prophet arrived at his father's house, he's out in the, Fields tending the sheep. His dad hasn't even called him. The prophet looks through all his brothers and says, none of these are king, and says, do you have another boy? And he says, oh, yes, there's one. 
hauled in David with sheep manure stuck to his feet, you know, just not in a very presentable state, comes in. Prophet looks at him and says, you will be king. How surprised do you think David was? You know, I, he's sitting out there with a the sheep. I mean, all he's doing is trying to be faithful. You know, just trying not mess up, not lose a sheep. Later we'll learn he was busy killing lions and bears, but nonetheless, he, he, was, doing, he was out there minding his own business, following his own party. He's called in and his, his whole life is revolutionized by this anointing that the prophet gets. I don't know about you, but if some prophet came to me, poured oil over me and says, you're going to be president of South Africa. <laughs> you know, it's going, to, it's going to be a life-changing moment. In addition, I think I might head up to Pretoria and be knocking on the Houses of Parliament doors. Do they have like one door at the front of Parliament? I don't know. But whatever that door is, I'll be knocking on it on the president's door and say, excuse me, but God is anointing me. Would you please move over? Did you know this? That from the time that David was anointed, it was between 15 to 20 years before he came king. And most of those bad things that I showed you there happened in those 15 to 20 years. Do you think that in those, that time, David was tempted just one time, just one time to say, maybe the prophet got it wrong? Do you know something? He never, ever, ever, ever forgot who he was and where he was going. And like a ship traveling to a harbor, when the storms came and knocked him off course, he simply recalibrated and re-navigated towards that harbor. He said, I remember what God has told me, that I will be king of Israel. And so when stuff comes, I'm going, to, I'm going to deal with it. And maybe it's going to take me a little longer, but I'm going to re, recalibrate all my calculations. I'm going to get back on course and I'm going to get there. Have you ever wondered what David was doing in those 15 to 20 years? You don't really have to wonder because it's written out very clearly in the Bible. You can just go and read it. In the books of 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel are the best accounts of it. But this is what I see David doing in these books. I see him doing the things that kings do. Before he had the title, before he had the recognition, he had it in his heart. He believed God. He said, God said it, so I'm going to live it. Whether my, anyone ever recognized it, I'm going to be that inside. And I'm going to live as if it were true. So with the, he honored Saul right until Saul's death, but he, he went out and did the, did the things that kings do. He killed Israel's enemies. He gathered to him all the, the desperate people, and he made an army. He defended the innocent. He consulted God for the nation. 
So that by, you know, 20 years later, he didn't have to go and knock on Saul's door and say, I'm supposed to be king. The entire nation of Israel stood up and said, we want you as king. Why? Because he was king. And all they had to do was recognize something that had been growing in his heart, and he had been determined to remember the destination, keep going for what God had said, unrelentingly pursuing the things that God had given him to pursue. Something about this is that is that the world recognized the word of the Lord. It recognized the word of its king, of its maker. And when it sees God's word living inside of you, when it sees God, the determination to be who God says you are meant to be, living in your heart, all of creation must surrender to that truth. All of David's environment finally had to bow to the revelation that he was king. A statement he made while he's facing Goliath. I just love it. I just love it. So he's standing there. He's standing in front of Goliath. No one wants to fight this giant of a a man who's come to challenge Israel. He's standing in front of this giant. A young boy. He was probably in his late teens at the time. Saul is asking him to wear Adult armor, he puts it on, it doesn't fit him. They're wondering how he's going to do it, and he makes the statement. He says, your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. When a lion or a bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock, I went after it and struck it and rescued the sheep from its mouth. Guys, are you hearing what I'm saying? You know, the the Bible is mind-blowing. He was tending his father's sheep. A lion or a bear would come to try and steal a sheep. He would strike them dead. There were no guns. It's unlikely that he even had a bow and arrow. He just had his little sling and a few rocks, a few stones. I went after it, struck it, and rescued the sheep from its mouth. When it turned on me, I seized it by its hair. True story. Struck it and killed it. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them because he has defied the armies of the living God. Can you see kingship rising up right there? The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. Oh my gosh, it just makes me, makes me want to do that hoo-ha thing that you men all do. It just makes me happy. It makes I just feel strength rising up in me when I read that. You know, you know, that's that's what God's people are like. You know, you might have a very menial job. Maybe all your job is is to tick off people who arrive at a certain event every day from a list. I mean, I don't know what your job is. Maybe it's um uh, I mean, this is not a menial job, it's a very important job, but a very hidden job. Maybe you're tending looking after children all day. Which is the kind of thing that, I mean, he wasn't looking after children, he was looking after sheep. But in that place of obscurity, he was honing his skills. He was practicing what is necessary to stand in the highest office of the land. He wasn't sitting back and just letting stuff happen. He was saying, no, what would a king do? 
What would a king do in this position? The second thing it says in verse 3 is that when the foundations are destroyed, who, what can the righteous do? We're going to remember the plan. In the 1100s in Italy, I'm going to give you a little history lesson. There were some very talented architects, and they drew up plans for this magnificent bell tower in the city of Pisa. Not pizza, Pisa. Pizza came later, and there was also a beautiful plan. But they drew up these plans, and they and they set to work building this magnificent building. When they got to the second floor, it, it, was, it had marble. It was magnificent. But, you know, marble's quite heavy. So this building was a building. You know, it was a building. It was a heavy, big thing. No aluminum structures. It was like rock and marble. They get to the second floor, and lo and behold, the whole building starts leaning over to the side. They hurriedly stopped building. You can believe me. You would too. And they realized that the foundations that they had dug for this building were completely inadequate. And the minute they put weight on these foundations, the whole building started sinking into the softer sand which was on one side. Later on, they had a bright idea. They said, okay, we will just start building... The side that's down, we'll start building those floors longer, you know, higher. So what they're doing, they try to correct the lean by kind of making it into a banana shape. By the time they got to the top, they realized this is so not going to work. And today we have what we call the Leaning Tower of Pisa. Hundreds of millions of rands were spent in the last century to undergird its foundations to stop it falling over. What am I trying to tell you? Something that Jesus tried to tell his disciples many years ago is that unless you build your life on solid foundation, then difficulties, storms, circumstances are going to come and it's going to start leaning. And you're going to try and build it back and it's still going to lean and it's just going to look like a banana. Andrew's saying, that's not very appealing. Darling, they didn't get it. They didn't get it. A banana peel, banana peel, peel, appealing. It looks like a banana. Okay, you've got to be sharp in this church. You've got to be sharp. Was it a bit corny? Oh, it was deep. But you know, something that David did is that he understood that there are certain things in my life that are non-negotiable. And it's so tempting when difficult times come to throw those out. How many of you, you're not going to raise your hand, but how many of you, when you were under financial strain, stopped tithing? (laughs) Just saying. How many of you When it was taking longer than you noticed, 
than you expected to find a, a marriage partner started being tempted to do it the world's way. How many of you at work, when you weren't getting the promotion, were tempted to be a little bit underhanded somehow? What are we talking about here? What are we talking about? We're talking about the fact that when, when hard times come, the pressure to step off godly foundations is going to be great. And you better know that you know that you know that you know that these things are in place. In the book of Acts, there was this mighty outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And when the people saw it, they were asking Peter, what should we do? And the first thing he said, is this Jesus, whom you crucified, be assured of this, God has made him both Lord and Savior. You know, the the first foundation that we all stand on that will make your life last through every kind of storm is this, that Jesus is Lord. He's above all. He deserves all honor. He deserves all praise. He deserves every part of your life. We're not living our lives for ourselves. Our lives are not our own. They have been bought with a price. We belong to him. And guys, that's awesome because the Lord always provides. The degree to which your life is submitted to him is the degree to which he provides. And guys, if that isn't solid, dug deep, in place, storms will drive you to lean a little bit. In that same scripture, he talks about repentance. And you know, we all, you, you, there, was all, there was a time when you decided that Jesus was the one you wanted to follow. And you made a decision and you turned from your old way of life to follow him. And it was a good day. It was a good day. But that's not the last time you're going to experience repentance because repentance means to change the way you think. And so it's a foundation that we stand on that that I'm constantly allowing God to modify my thinking. That the reason I'm in pain and hardship is not because God is wrong, it's because I'm misunderstood. I'm not thinking right. You know, that sounds fantastic. It's like, can that really be? Can it be so simple? I'm here to tell you yes. I'm here to tell you yes. Listen to me. I've got this story that is so, so, so exciting. Many years back, Andrew and I are running another church. We're raising up a counseling team. One of our newbies, he hasn't been in counseling ministry for very long at all, gets landed with this incredibly difficult case. An alcoholic comes to him and says, please, I want to be free of alcoholism, help me. Most psychologists will tell you that this is years worth of therapy. He said, you know what, I don't know much, but this much I know that you are in pain and you are going after alcohol because you're thinking wrong. So you and me, we're going to sit here and every time you are tempted to drink, we're going to pray and we're going to ask God to change what's going on in your mind. And 
he did that. They prayed about some things there. He went on his way. Two weeks later, the guy hadn't come back. This, guy, my, this newbie counselor is phoning him and saying, where are you? What's happening? He's saying, no, no, I don't need to come back. I don't need to come back. He's thinking this guy's got a drinking binge and lost everything. He, a month later, he finally says, I demand that you come back and see me. This guy comes back, and they're sitting there and talking, and he, he says, no, I haven't, I haven't touched a drink since. So he says, well, what? how come? He says, no, I just do what you told me. Every time I'm tempted to drink, I sit down, I wait on the Lord, and I say, Lord, show me what I'm thinking, and show me what's wrong with what I'm thinking. And in that moment, here's a moment that the Bible would call repentance. We would call just wisdom. And bam, then he's like, okay, I don't feel like drinking anymore. Let's go on with my day. Never looked back, never touched another drink again in his life. He talked about baptisms. You know, something, if we can't obey God in the little things, how are we going to obey him in the big And I guess I want to say part of being under the Lordship of Jesus Christ is that we do what he says. Not because it's a legalistic command, but because he's that good. He's that good. That every suggestion he makes for you is so that you can prosper and live well and be blessed. And therefore, he just has to hint at something. And as we jump to it, blessing and life they speak about adding being added to the church. You know what? The greatest life and strength that you will ever experience is in the relationships that you find in church. When tough times come, these are the people you will need. These are the people that need to be there. Relationships are what will hold you on course. And finally, he says, for the Lord is righteous. He loves justice. Upright men will see his face. I don't know about you, but I really want to see God's face. I've heard that you die after you see God's face, and you know what? I wouldn't even mind. But I don't think you do. (laughs) I think you come alive. When my children were teenagers, I had this stock phrase that I always used. You know, when they're heading out with their friends and you can control so much what they do, but then after that, you, ha- you know, you have to let them go and experience life. And I, I, would, I would send them off to a party or out on, to go with friends on some, some expedition or whatever, and my phrase was this, remember, stay with Jesus. Because I was convinced of this. If you just stick with Jesus, he's going to direct you. And that all the times that we mess up are the times that we forget to be with Jesus. Psalm 111 and verse 10 may have been written by David, maybe not, but it says this, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All who follow his precepts love good understanding, have good understanding, sorry. To him belongs eternal praise. The fear of the Lord is nothing more than the revelation that outside of God there is nothing good and All good is in God. Therefore, in order to experience good things, I do everything to preserve my relationship with Him. I do everything to preserve my relationship with Him. Amen. 
Father, I want to pray for this grace, people. Lord, I sense greatness here. I sense, I sense hearts brimming over with expectation of good things. I sense people with a vision to do things that are, that are world-changing, influential, that bring good to the environments. And Lord God, I pray for each soul that, Father God, you would awaken that in them. You would remind them who they are. As David was anointed king, I, I pray that you would anoint them. You would anoint them with the revelation of who they are in you. You would call out the greatness, Father God. You would remind them of who they are, Lord God. They would find themselves dreaming of great things. And Lord God, in that place, I'm just asking, Father God, that you would give them the perseverance and the courage to not stop till they get there. Not stop till they get there. Father God, I pray they would remember the destination. Father God, I pray that they would remember the plan. They, they would not stray from the basic. They wouldn't be tempted to take it into their own hands and do it their own way, but they would follow you. Lord God, that they would stay with you, that your presence would be their guiding light. It would be their foundation. It would be everything they strive for. Lord God, I pray that your presence would be with them. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Father. Thank you.